Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. This is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight's guest is Deanna Kuhl. Deanna has a story that she wants to share. It comes from a good source, and I would like to hear the story as well. But uh, Deanna, um, before we get into the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about, where did you grow up? What part of the state? I grew up in Gardner, Mass., a small little town west of Worcester. Um, pretty typical family. Uh, Mom and dad. I have two sisters and a brother. Um, you know, just a all-American type of family from an outsider looking in. Wasn't always pleasant, but it wasn't horrible. And how was, um, like, going to school and elementary school and um, high school? This was, uh, um, what was that like? I, I, cha- I, was, I had a challenge in school. Um, social anxiety, I didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. Um, I had some traumas in early childhood um, and into my adolescence. And then I had some pretty significant trauma in my early teens that played a significant role. Um, One of them was in school. So it made school really challenging. Um, Moved schools a lot in my, you know, uh, middle school to high school. Um, I was bullied. That played a significant role in, you know, years to come in my substance use. and the traumas as well. So that um, early childhood to to early adolescent um, would probably, I would say, played a huge role in my substance use disorder. Had a huge impact in my life in general. Um, I was bullied. Did you start using and what product were you using? So I was pretty sheltered and pretty naive up until I turned 18. And when I turned 18 in my family, you were an adult. So you went from having rules to no rules. Um, Started using when I was 18. I had never smoked a cigarette. I had never drank any alcohol, never done any substances. And I dove right into cocaine. Um, And it was a lifelong romance. Um, It began, I fell in love um, my first um, experience, experience with cocaine was, um, at my boyfriend's house. We sat down what I thought was going to be Thanksgiving dinner and it wasn't, it was, um, his mother came out with a silver platter with, um, a nice big pile of cocaine on it and passed it around the dinner table. And, um, I didn't His mother to- did that, huh? Yeah. Yep. That was my first experience. And, you know, I didn't want to look like I was embarrassed. You know, I was, I, I, um, I knew cocaine was bad, but I really was not educated. Um, I was so naive, grew up in church and, and really wasn't educated. So, and I was, I didn't grow up around drugs and, and alcohol really. Um, I didn't want to, you know, I had the bad boy boyfriend, you know, it was my mentality and I didn't want to look stupid. So I tried it. And like I said, um, I loved it right from there. It made me feel like I fit in. It made me feel like I was everything that I always thought I wasn't. I, I felt beautiful after I felt like I had, it was like that powder courage, you know, 
Um, it gave me oh, that yeah. confidence. So um, life changed from there. I was only a junior in high school at that time. It took over. Okay. Did you end up finishing high school? I did not. I did not. I got kicked out of my house because I was, you know, I started skipping school. Um, I started sneaking into the basement at home. I started sneaking out of the house that night. Um, I started stealing my dad's car. He got to the point where he was putting his keys in his pillowcase. Um, I started stealing money. Um, I, I, I changed who I was as a person. Um, did I started your mother, did this, yeah, did this guy's mother still keep supplying you with cocaine? No, at that point, I really didn't stick around their, their house. I was still with him. Um, so that, that kind of began, that was in Thanksgiving, around Thanksgiving of 2000. One, um, and I, I, I stayed pretty involved with him and the drugs and the party scene until about it was it was like a solid six months, um, and then their family moved to Florida, and I stayed around with the drugs and those people probably another few months, um, and I, I was pretty much. Um, living at a friend's house and I got tired, I got tired of it and I was missing my family. Um, so I, I, I stopped. My dad gave me the, the tough love. Um, you know, if I could, um, if I get my stuff together, I could come home. So at that point it was like, okay, I'm going to try, I'm going to try and get my stuff together and I'm going to try and come home. So I, <clears throat> I did. I stopped using and I came home and I lived at home for a while. Uh, I tried to go back to school, but I had fallen so far behind. Um, like there was just, I felt like I was drowning and I couldn't, I couldn't catch up. So I completely signed out of school and I was working. I was a CNA at the time. Um, and I reconnected with one of my, my friends that, I used with however I didn't start using again her boyfriend was in jail and I started driving her to visit her boyfriend and I met my daughter's father in jail he became my pen pal you know um and it was um I got sold those jailhouse dreams is what I want to call them he sent me those letters that made me fall in love with what could have been or you know I believed that I could save him, maybe. My dad used to say that um, I always found the pound puppies. I could say, I always thought I could save these people that I couldn't. Um, I was broken myself. I was so broken myself that I, if I fixed other people, I didn't have to face my own problems. I didn't have to face my own demons if I was focusing on fixing other people. Um, so I started dating my daughter's father while he was in jail. And, um, we dated for several years. How do you um, how do you date how do you date while somebody's in jail? That explain that to me. 
Well, you know, we, we wrote letters back and forth, but in my head we were dating and on paper we said we were dating, but when he got out, he moved right in with me, which was crazy because I didn't know him from a hole in the wall. Um, but those were the stupid choices I was making at the time, you know, not thinking about things. Um, he was were you really... taking anything at this time? Nope. Nope. I was sober. Those were sober choices. Um, okay. Sober choices of a broken girl looking for someone to love her. Um, so he moved right in. He got released from jail and he moved right in with me. Um, and I started using again. I started sniffing cocaine and drinking. Um, and, you know, um, he was using intravenously behind my back. Um, I really hadn't been exposed too much to the intravenous drug use at that time. I hadn't been, um, well, let me backtrack just a little bit. My, my boyfriend that I met that I was using the cocaine with before he was using intravenously, but I, I really didn't realize it at the time. Um, he was using heroin, but I was naive to the point that I thought he was smoking weed. Like I was that naive that when he was high nodding out, I thought he was stoned. Um, Flash forward back to my daughter's father, I started finding syringes and I, I was like really, really devastated, but, um, not enough to, not enough to move on. Um, he went back to jail for stealing a guitar and I stood by his side and then he started asking me to smuggle stuff in and, um, I wanted to be that ride or die girl. Um, that tough girl. And I did, I started smuggling substances in, um, and was making horrible choices, but thought I was like the coolest, coolest person ever because I could do these things and get away with them. Um, you know, so I started smuggling in heroin and doing all these crazy things, living this crazy life. Um, wasn't using heroin that doesn't come into my life until, you know, years and years later. Um, but I was, you know, I was living that crazy lifestyle and I was still sniffing cocaine, um, drinking until I get pregnant in 2000, in 2004. Um, he's in jail and I go to the jail to visit and to tell him that I'm pregnant and I get, um, I basically get tackled to the floor and by all the COs, and um, they bring me into this interrogation room to inform me that they know that I'm smuggling stuff in, but they don't have any actual physical evidence that I am. Um, and they're trying to get me to talk. And um, I'm not talking, but I'm scared out of my mind because I never really um, been in trouble with the law, like little things, shoplifting here and there. Um I had some larceny by check that I was, you know, bouncing checks here and there um, to get money for the drugs when I didn't have any. Um, the the um, shoplifting was dumb stuff, like just out having fun, stealing makeup, like just dumb things at that point in time. Um, you know, so I get pregnant for my daughter. Um, I got banned from the from the jail for 99 years because um, I wouldn't admit to smuggling stuff in, but they, I don't know, whatever. Anyways, they could ban me. I was banned well, for 99 years. 
they could they could go from <clears throat> this deduction that if you are his only visitor and he has contraband yeah. in the prison and then you have the obvious choice so yep. you're right they can't they can't prove it but at the same time we know they, yep. they know that it's you and so um okay and when you're buying cocaine back in the early 2000s uh it's pretty expensive it was uh, it was it was yeah. i mean i remember people used to it was a 75 dollars for a for a little envelope of stuff and uh I don't know exactly what it was called, but um, I, I know that people that were doing it was it was the high end high, you know. Costly. Oh, it was. It was. It was costly. It was, uh, it was, it was safe. I, I say safe. It was never safe, but it was. You knew you were getting cocaine, and you weren't afraid that you were getting fentanyl. You know, not that I'm trying to glorify it. I'm absolutely not trying to glorify it. But you didn't live in fear then, like you do now. Um, oh, yeah. there's nothing <clears throat> it's very bad now. It's so scary now. I'm, you know, I'm so blessed that I've made it to this side. Um, so, you know, fast forward, I, me and my daughter's father, we ended up, he, it got abusive. I, I got pregnant. I changed, I tried changing my life. I, and I did for a little while. Um, there was abuse there. He got out and he didn't change his life. You know, um, I did. He kept going with the addiction world and he just couldn't, he just couldn't figure it out. Um, and I did for a while. I went back to school. I got my high school diploma. I went to college for a little bit um, until I met my son's father. Um, I have three kids. So now I'm on to my second child. Well, I met my second child's father um, and he was a heroin addict and I jumped back into the addiction world again and um, and I am using cocaine again and I get heavier into it and I inject for the first time and I loved it. Um, and I start, you know, lacking in school. I start lacking, taking care of my daughter. I start um, shifting again and I, I start falling back into that addiction and falling back into the I, I also struggle with mental health I've struggled with mental health my whole life with the um, depression I have PTSD um, and for the majority of my life I hid behind mental health and I would never admit to myself that I was an addict I didn't see myself as an addict I saw myself as having depression I saw myself as having you know, bipolar or this, that, or the other thing, but I would never, I could not admit to myself that I was an addict through all of this. That was not like, I was not, if you ask me, I was not an addict. Um, well, when you were on cocaine, when you come off of cocaine from what I remember, people just will, will crash and crash for sometimes days. Mm. Uh, were you, were you, and, and then your, your body, your brain is, is so down low, you know, you're in the, the, the depths of depression because the cocaine has left your body and now it's you're, you're sink down into this other level um you <clears throat> did you like pass out and sleep for a day and a half or something and and then go back at it again or how did what was your what was your your week your day and your week like you know um i have to be honest I, there's a lot of blur 
in my store, like in my lifespan, like there's a lot of blur. I remember that I could, I would use for a couple days and then I could put, this was how I justified it. I could put it down for weeks or even months and not touch it again. Um, and that was how I justified not being an addict. Um, but then there was times that I would use for a week straight and, you know, um, so, but I definitely had the crash after I absolutely did. And then there was the emotions that came with it and the crying and the, I hate myself and, um, I'm never going to make anything of myself, you know, and then here I am pregnant again and I have, I'm having my second child and I don't find out I'm pregnant till I'm about 12 weeks pregnant. So I'd been using while being pregnant and, um, so there's the guilt that comes along with that. Um, and I, as soon as I find out I'm pregnant, I, I quit. I was able to quit with And even when I got pregnant from my daughter, like everything, I put the cigarettes down, I put everything down without a problem. It was like, I had to care for that other life. It wasn't, I cared about other people. I cared about, it was myself. I never cared about, you know, um, well, the, the thing is with cocaine is is a, is more of a mental addiction and like heroin is a physical addiction yeah so it's it um i don't say it's easier but it's it's um it's more doable uh, especially when you have a, a a second life that you now have to take into consideration and the parenthood or motherhood was taken over and that, that's why you were able to quit so at that time and and then you, yeah. you quit during your entire rest of your pregnancy yep i did i did my son was Which born is. um but he had complications right from right from birth um he was 12 days overdue his thigh bone was fused to his hip um he was allergic to everything he swallowed meconium in the in the womb um and uh he literally i mean you name it he was allergic to it fresh mowed grass, every animal, trees, fungi, um, coconut oil. And I found out about these allergies because he ate a cookie that had coconut oil in it and he had an anaphylactic reaction. Um, he was also sensory impaired, so he didn't feel pain like you and I feel. Um, he has oppositional defiance disorder. He has um, severe ADHD. So right from the get up, I had my daughter now. And I had my son who had all of these issues and his father did not get clean. And because of everything I went through with my daughter's father, I cut his father out of the picture. I didn't give him an option of being a father, which um, his father ended up passing away of an overdose. And that's, I live with regret because I wish I would have let him know his father on some level and uh, I can't change it. I can't go back in time. And that's something I'm learning to process now through my sobriety that I have to live in the here and now, and I can't go backwards. Um, but that's something I beat myself up with for a long time. His dad passed away in 2013 of an overdose. Um, but so it was, here I am a single mom, two kids, two different fathers. Is, is, there, is, there, is, is the dad's parents alive? No. So his mother passed the dad's. So I ended up contacting the dad's family um, and they wanted to be a part of Michael's life. My son is Michael and um, they were for a little while. Um, and then 
um, his sister, who was the main part of Michael's life, uh, ended up um, dying. Um, I believe she, I'm not sure, actually, I'm going to leave that alone, but she ended up passing away. And, um, and then his mother passed away. Um, so we really don't have any contact now. Those were the people I had contact with and now they have passed on. So we don't have any contact with his father's family. I hope that in the future, um, he has still has two, two brothers alive. And I hope that in the future, Michael can, if he chooses to, can reach out and have, um, you know, contact with his side of the family because he has other siblings, um, that he doesn't How know. old is Michael now? Michael is now 16, almost 17, and he still has struggles. He still has major struggles. He just got expelled from school, and he's still going through um, things. You know, he still has big things that he's going through, and um, life is hard. Life is hard, and um, they haven't had it easy. Um, I'm, I'm blessed to say I'm present in their lives today, and I'm a very big, active part of all three of my children's lives. Um sobriety has brought me that sobriety has brought me that and it's taken a lot a lot of hard work life has been kind not been kind um it is not easy but it is so worth it um you know so um at this point in time i'm still sober and i get i get this job at a residential program with borderline females and um this is, I finally feel like I fit in somewhere. I finally feel like I found my niche. Like I, this is the job that I'm supposed to have. Um, it's my passion. I, I get this job and I, I am entry level residential counselor and, um, it's five women with borderline. They have, um, so it's, I'm a residential counselor at a, um, house with borderline females. There's five of them. And, um, my first shift there, they were being, one woman was being restrained. I don't even know, probably 30 to 40 times in the one shift because they, they were phasing out mental hospital, I mean, um, state hospitals and they were, the women were being put into um, group homes and trying to be integrated into society. Uh, and really they, weren't meant they didn't have the mental capacity to be in society um they this house was had plexiglass over the glass they could have spoons and no other silverware they were really a danger to themselves um self-interest behaviors and i climbed the corporate ladder i became a program manager um i was very very passionate about my job and one of my individuals ended up slitting her throat right in front of me um and i held her in my arms and um, she survived, but I was traumatized so bad. Um, and I lost myself that day. I really, I've never been the same since that day. Um, I could see that would be quite terrifying. It uh, was. It was. Uh, I didn't go back to work. I tried several times. Um, I had been working with her for several years. I watched her go from being restrained several times a day to getting up to the point where she could hold her own lighter and light her own cigarettes and she was going on home visits, you know? Um, so like I, I, it was hard. It was really hard. So I lost myself at that point, but also during this time I started having some really medical issues and I started losing my vision and I started, 
um, having hearing problems. I had a really bad ear infection and I had, I got automastoiditis and, um, which was like a, a tumor in my mastoid bone. Um, and this is where I get introduced to Percocets and opiates in my life. And, um, things shift because I am going through this trauma and I'm not working and I have like complex PTSD. And so when that happened, all my trauma from my childhood that I have been able to block away and not think about like the bullying in school and the sexual trauma that I had gone through and, you know, some stuff that I had gone on inside my household and just things that I, I had managed to function without thinking about everything came barreling out like Pandora's box in my brain just burst wide open with this trauma with this girl. And um, so now I'm living with all of these traumas that are re every time I try to go to sleep at night, it's like all this stuff is replaying in my head. When I close my eyes, it's like this movie real playing. And uh, so I start spiraling at this point in time. This is 2000. Um, 2013 2014 roughly and um so I have three kids by this point in time and I'm in a domestic violence situation as well when I was working at the group home I met my third child's father and um it started as a relationship of convenience um he had a place to live um I was struggling to keep my own place with my two kids and um it was a relationship of convenience and then I got pregnant um, and it became very, very abusive very quickly when I got pregnant um, and I was in a very unhealthy situation, a very dangerous situation um, and I left and I had a restraining order on him for a year um, and I went back after the restraining order. I wish I could tell you why. I have no idea. I wish I could tell you that um, things got better, but they didn't. They got much worse and they escalated much faster than the first time. Um, and there was, it got to the point where there was steak knives over every door. The abuse got really bad. Um, really bad were you on were you on percocets and that sort of thing were you on opioids yeah. now yeah yeah and what, um, what was he on he was on percocets um he was he was a severe alcoholic um in fact when i gave birth to my son he was escorted out of the hospital and he's not on the birth certificate because he was getting abusive in the hospital um yeah so I'm not going to go into all those details, but um, you don't. You don't, don't need to. It's okay. Uh, but it was. It was really brutal. Um, so, you fast forward now to about right around at the same time as that girl slit her throat. Like everything kind of crashed at the same time. Um, yeah. I'm out of work, the girl slit her throat, I, I'm losing my vision, I'm losing my hearing, everything was just like, boom, all at the same time, and all my traumas come back, and um, there's a restraining order, and he serves 18 months in jail for the domestic violence, and um, um, 
I just spiral, like really spiral out of control. And I moved back in with my dad. Um, me and the three kids moved home with my dad for a little bit. Um, but I'm really not staying there at this time. And I, I start meeting these people, different people, getting mixed in with the wrong crowd again. And I'm taking my kids to some places that really shouldn't, they shouldn't have been, many places actually, surrounding them with people they shouldn't have been around. Um, and I start dating someone that, again, was not healthy for me or my children. Um, we moved to Westminster. And um, that's when things, like, that's when I start jumping into the heavier stuff. That's when I start doing heroin. I can't afford the perks anymore. And it really, they weren't doing the trick, to be honest with you. I just, you know, I had been doing them so long and they just weren't doing the trick anymore. They weren't shutting things off. They weren't, they just weren't doing it anymore. Um, I... I start, um, so I'm in this unhealthy relationship and you're he's, living with this guy. Yeah. Yeah. We're living together and things are spiraling pretty quickly. Um, and I can feel them spiraling. My kids aren't doing well. I'm not interacting with them now. I, now I kind of jumped all over the place, but throughout the years with my mental health and my addiction, my kids, I would, I would reach out to like an aunt or someone and say, Hey, listen, like my mental health's not doing well. I'm going to check myself in. Can my kids stay with you? And they'd go stay somewhere for like a month or two while I got myself quote unquote together. And then they'd come home and I'd be okay for a little while, you know, and that kind of went on for the course of my motherhood, we'll say. Um, so we're now we're talking like where we've made it to 2015, 2016. Um, and there was a person in my life that I had known for many years and his sister used to be one of my best friends and his family, I had lived with their family for a little bit back when, before I had kids and I was kind of bouncing all over the place. Um, and we had been really, me and his sister had been really close and he was serving some time in Shirley State um, or Shirley Max, whatever it's called. And um, I was putting money on his commissary. I was visiting him, you know, I was supporting him. And I thought of him as a really close friend, like a best friend. He had asked me to marry him and I said, no, he's in jail. And I had already gone down that road with my daughter's father and whatever. Yeah. But, um, so the, and I, I supported him for a few years while he was in there, he was doing five to seven for armed robbery and some crazy stuff. He was a heroin addict, but I was just trying to be supportive as a friend. We had been friends for years. And, um, so at this time, me and the most current boyfriend had broken up and um, but I was real heavy into the heroin and I reached out to my dad and I was like, you know, I'm not doing okay. Can the kids come stay with you? Um, and that's the first time I admitted that I was a heroin addict. That was the first time I admitted I was not okay. Um, and my kids went and stayed at my dad's. And I went and I, I went finally to a detox. That was the first time I didn't go inpatient for mental health, but I went into a detox and um, 
I did the program or I thought I did the program. Um, and it, and all through this whole time, I tried getting sober, but I never knew there was a difference between sobriety and recovery. Um, until my journey this time, I never knew there was a difference. Um, so now we're in February of 2017 and I go in, I go to detox, I get out, I go to like an IOP and I do the program and I, my kids move home on Mother's Day um, and that so-called friend brutally attacked me in my own home that night. Um, I gave up on life the next day. I gave up on everything. Um, I was like, you know, I just tried so hard and got my life together. And my mindset was like, for what? For what? What did I, why bother? You know, um, that was by far the most personal and most painful attack I've ever been through. I'm sorry, what was that? I didn't say anything. I was just thinking how that how that must have felt. It was you know. the hardest, the most personal, the most painful. Um, yeah, the hardest. And I definitely gave up on life that day. The the next day. It was um anything I learned when I went to detox. I threw out the window. Um, so that's May of 2017. By October, I had picked up a crack pipe. I had never smoked crack before. Um, heroin, I had picked up heroin again, like I said, the very next day. Um, now, so October of 2017, I'm smoking crack. I start smoking crack pretty much around the clock with my kids uh, sleeping in the other room. And I lost my kids by January of 2018. Three months, I lost everything. By, um, this is... D DCF take them over? Yeah, yeah, DCF took them. Um, I'm grateful for the person that called DCF because I didn't know how to ask for help, but I knew my kids deserved better than what I was giving them. By far the hardest thing that I ever, um, yeah. I signed over guardianship of them because I knew that I couldn't give them what they deserved. I knew that they deserved to have a beautiful life and I was broken, you know, I was broken. And at that time I felt like they deserved someone that was much better than me today. I don't see it that way. I know that they deserve to have a healthy mother, but at that time I could not see it that way. Um, so now we're in January of 2018 and well, I, around, I want to say it was probably June that I signed over guardianship, but, um, <clears throat> by, so I lost them in January I would say by March, I picked up a needle and I was using a needle and a pipe around the clock until I, I did not lay down to go to sleep. I would just go until I could not go anymore. Um, and as soon as my eyes opened up again, I would go back at it. Um, by May, I had lost all dignity. I was getting money any way that I knew how, which turned into prostitution. I mean, I, it didn't matter. I didn't care about myself. I hated myself so much that I didn't feel like I was worth anything anyways. And really I was just in my head basically was a slow suicide. You know, I didn't have, I just, and I had attempted suicide several times. I lit myself on fire. Um, 
I, I cut myself. Um, I tried slitting my throat. I mean, I, you name it, I tried it. Um, I went to the depths of hell. I crossed lines. I never in a million years thought I would ever cross. I, I stabbed somebody. I, I've done things that are inhumane. Like I, I, I am so blessed to have made it to this side of the fence and I pray every single day that I never go back to where I was. I got sectioned by my family and I, I was so ruthless. I went in front of the judge and the judge was reading the, the section paperwork, you know, and, um, I, I was just so disrespectful to the judge. And I remember looking at the judge and he said, it said that I stabbed someone. And I remember looking at the judge and just being like, yes, I, effing did and I'll do it again like I just I just wanted to die I just wanted to not exist and I was just existing I was just existing I hadn't lived in so long and you know um one of the very last suicide attempts um I would say was like my gift of gift of desperation. I, I woke up, um, and I, I just wanted, I was so angry. Like I was so angry when I would open my eyes again and they would open. Um, I just wanted the pain to end. I just wanted it to be over. Um, I felt like I had done too much wrong, that there was no hope for me. I felt like, I felt like the world was better off without me. Um, I'm really wow. blessed to say that today I don't feel that way. Today I'm grateful to open my eyes. Well, what was the, what was the turning point? Which we, so I, um, I, I, I woke up the emotional the pain you had, you know. Mm -hmm. I woke up in the middle of the night and um, I, I just had it on my heart to write this poem. And um, I wish I had it with me to share, but it was basically, and for me, my higher power is God. And it was a poem saying that um, basically he's with me and my time is not here yet. And um, in 2000 and the end of 2020 into the beginning of 2021 was like, that's well, that was my turning point. And in New Year's of 21, I bought myself, I've never been married. I don't want to be married, but I bought myself a one carat diamond ring and I made a vow to myself to learn how to love myself. Um, I got black mold poisoning at the end of 2020 and um, my doctor, they were so kind to me. They came, they thought it was COVID. So they came out in hazmat suits Um and it ended up being the black mold poisoning and they couldn't find a vein to put the IV in. Um, and I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. Um, but they started calling me every weekend and saying like, they were my biggest cheerleaders and they were like, you can do this. We have faith in you. Um, I tried for about six months. I tried really hard and I would get a few days together. Eventually I got a few weeks together. Um, but I would say um, I don't I don't have a significant specific moment 
um, that I could say is a turning point, but th that was the black mold poisoning is probably the most significant thing that made me like, okay, this has to change. I can't, I finally want to live. So how am I going to make this happen? Um, I put myself in a sober house. I reached out for help and I, because trying on my own wasn't working and I needed something to hold me accountable. So I moved into a woman's sober house in Gardner um, in May of 21 and I relapsed in October of 21, but I found Alyssa's place, Peer Run Recovery Center in Gardner, and they just welcomed me with open arms and I dove right into recovery. I dove in and um, I got involved with everything I could possibly get involved with. And um, I started facilitating meetings and I started, um, I just, it became my passion. It became my passion and I, I got involved with going all over with them to resource tables and outreach. And um, I became the chairperson of the advisory board there. Um, and I became a peer leader and a peer leader supervisor. Um, and I just, I just dove in and that has been my passion. And, you know, when I, if I can just reach one person, it means that everything I went through was not for nothing. It means that I can, um, I can know that there was a purpose to my pain. Um, I, I love going out and reach and doing outreach and teaching people and educating people that recovery is possible. Um, and that your people are worth it. Um, there's, there's nobody that's unworthy of love. Um, no matter what you've done and no matter how far low, how low you've gotten, there's still hope out there that you can come back from it. Um, I really didn't believe that there was hope for me after all the things that I had done and the disrespect in the, um, you know, the. You certainly the, been through a lot. That's for sure. That's a, you're right. It's amazing that you survived. Um, between the, the boyfriends who were not kind or good to you and then, and then the different combination of drugs that you've taken over time. I can see where this was. I mean, in substance use disorder is, is a disease. When you get hooked on Percocets and, and the heroin, that's that now, you, now you're, you're battling the, your brain, you know, is, is, trying to pull you the other way, you know, and you, you found something to fill it with, which is the most important thing. Um, <clears throat> you said uh, Alyssa house. Is that what you said? No, uh, Alyssa's place. Alyssa's place. Yeah. Is that, was that started by the Dunn family? It was. Yep. Alyssa's place, peer run yeah. recovery center by Michelle and David Dunn. Yep. Yeah. Michelle was a guest on the show at one time. So, oh, that's awesome. Just, it's a small impact. small world that you know, and then and they their their whole purpose of opening that was just to save people like you, and, and they have it's, yeah. it's, it's ironic now the whole we've completed the circle here, and I didn't yeah. know any of that when I first met you, you know, yeah, um, and what is the status with your kids now? 
So my my daughter is 19 now. Um, she is working at a service dog training company and she's doing amazing. She has a service dog herself because she's epileptic. Um, my middle son is now, um, he's doing a pathway program with Mount Wachusett Community College where he's getting college credit and high school credit at the same time. Um, he's incredibly smart. He's part of the UBMS program, math and science, upward bound math and science. Um, so he is just, he's thriving at this new program. And then my youngest son, Benjamin is, he loves track and field. Um, he is in eighth grade. Um, and he is just, he he's kind of a motorhead. He loves working on cars and stuff. The boys live with my dad now. Um, but I have them Thank all you. the time weekends and whatnot. Um, I decided not to fight to take them home because they have been settled where they are and I don't want to disrupt what they have going for them and I can take them and, and be a big part of their life without disrupting their routine that they have now. Um, I still have so much work to do on myself and my recovery and I, I feel like they have been shuffled around in so much in their little lives that, um, if we can be a team and work together as a village to raise them and give them the best life that they can have, I feel like they deserve all the love in the world and they deserve to have the best chance at life. And that's, that's what I believe we're doing for them. And uh, that's really good. None of the men are in the picture. The youngest father, the youngest, my son, Benjamin, his father is in the picture with them. Um, I don't really associate with him but they do okay and what about your mother um so we are repairing our relationship we haven't had a healthy relationship in the majority of my life um we're working on repairing it um it's been strained pretty much my entire life so it's yeah. not been healthy so your father is this is like a soul dad yeah my dad, no my dad he's um he's remarried um he's happy he's healthy um he's been my rock he's always my dad's been my dad's been my rock he's been really i've been really close to my dad since i was real young um and he's just always been my go-to he's um I love my dad with everything. I love my mom too. Please don't. I do love my mother. Um, just my dad and I have always had a really close, special relationship. And um, he's just been my superhero, you know? Well, that's, that's really nice. I'm glad, I'm glad you have a good relationship with a, with a parent, you know, and, and apparently his new wife is okay raising the two boys. She's amazing with them. She is. And to know that she was willing to take them as her own has um, been really amazing, too. I, I'm really blessed to have an amazing family. I have two sisters and a brother who also are very, very supportive. Um, they, you know, they won't co-sign my crap, but they are supportive in a healthy way. That's true. Really, that's good. That's also good, though. 
know. Um, and, and what I'm amazed at when you were supporting the, the third guy in prison, um, where did you come up with all this money to keep it going? You know, it's like you it sounds like you never had any problem getting a job or anything. Um, I just I've I've never had a problem working, but since I had um since the woman slit her throat in front of me, I've been on social security. Um and I'd like to think that I've been fairly okay about paying my bills and budgeting. Not the best with money, but I'm I'm not horrible with it. So and I'm a giver. I like taking care of people. It's it's where my heart is. Sometimes to a fault, more often than not to a fault. Yeah. And um, the woman that slit her throat, she, is she alive now? She is. She is. I, I actually saved her life. And I find um, that's how when I struggle with that, um, when I struggle with that trauma, that's how I try to get through it is knowing that she did make it through it because um she was looking dead she made eye contact with me as she slit her throat so it was it was a pretty significant point in my life that changed everything so um i find solace in knowing that she survived and i was the reason she survived well that gives you the reason why the purpose why god put you here you thank you you saved this person's life you know Mm -hmm. that's that's in something that you should always um, keep in the back of your mind that, that, you know, there's a purpose and who knows, there might be some more, but um, cause you're where you're working now. Um, you're definitely helping other people that, that just like they, they helped you, you know? Yeah. Thank uh, you. Yeah. I'm never too short on words, but today I'm a little short on words. Your story <laughs> is extremely compelling. I, and I hope those who are listening to it um, realize that if you have the courage, there's hope. That's why we call the show The Courage to Hope. <clears throat> You're mm-hmm. the, the most classic example of anyone we've ever had that's been through an awful more than I can imagine. And you've you pulled it out. You pulled through. Uh, Thank you. It's, it's amazing. Um, and I really... <clears throat> I'm proud of you, and I hope you can really, you know, keep it going and keep doing what you're doing. And and I think you you you've made it over the hump. I think is the as the saying goes, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you. That means a lot. I really appreciate what you're de- what you're doing now, because right? I I know about the place you work, because we did a whole show around it, you know. So it's um it's a small world because you're out yeah. with Gardner. It's, you're yeah, out with I- Gardner. And, my my friend finds you and we all everybody came together here mm-hmm. so i actually volunteer there i don't actually work there but it's an amazing place oh yeah if you volunteer it's the same same difference you just don't get yeah. paid for it you you give them your knowledge and your time and everything and yeah. and how did you come about for those that don't know marshall is um deanna's friend who is the one who's living homeless at the moment mm-hmm. on purpose so that he can log everything and write a book on being homeless in Massachusetts. Um, how did you know, how did you meet him? 
so he actually came out to Alyssa's place. I met him at Alyssa's place and he came out to talk about Buddhism and Dharma recovery about two years ago. And um, when he came out to share, he had a huge impact on me um, and the way that they shared and educated us. And um, we've kept in contact over Facebook, actually. Um, and I, I follow his story about his homeless journey. Um, and it's pretty incredible what he's doing right now. I think it's it's so incredible. Um, and the changes that he's making and, and the impact that he's having in people's lives is incredible. Oh, yeah. He's going to make, talk about courage, you know. Um, oh, my gosh, yeah. Do what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, gave up. He gave up. I don't want to say a cushy life, but he gave up something easy and convenient. And then he ends up living homeless in the tent in the woods in a snowstorm, you know. And I'm I saw his, his would-be home all collapsed from the snow on his tent, you know. So um, I think he's going to go a different route now. I'm not mm, sure what yeah. he's doing. I'm, but uh, It takes incredible um, strength to do what he's doing. It sure does, and a lot of perseverance, because he's going to be out there 366 days. This is a leap year, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, um. And but you're 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 the compelling story that you turn the corner and you're making it and and things are happening and and the best part is you know you still have a good good connection with your with your sons your two sons and your daughter and that's that's amazing you know in itself um, and they they know you've been trying and they can see that so and they obviously want their mother to succeed it's kind of a circular thing. Yeah. Um, thank you. Before we say goodbye, um, is there one thing that you would like to say to the listening audience that maybe I didn't ask you, or something that you would like to to close with? Just know that there's hope for anybody, no matter where you are in your journey. You're worth fighting for, no matter where what where you are and what you've done. Don't ever give up hope on yourself. You're worth fighting for. Okay. And. And when you feel down, how do you, what, what do you do? Now? By the way, you mentioned Buddhism. Is uh, Are you doing meditation? I do meditate a little bit. Um, I, you know, I struggle with my spirituality. I kind of, I believe in God. Um, I have faith. I, I don't really know exactly. I'm still exploring. I'm still exploring to see really where, where I fit in as far as what my spirituality is i do meditate i do yoga i do um all different stuff really well both of them meditation and yoga are very healthy for you that's those are good choices by far and meditation that takes practice it's like anything it takes practice i've been meditating for over 40 years so i am actually it's actually longer than that i'm it's hard to believe that i'm I'm the age that I am. So I guess you could say I've been meditating for 50 years. Mm-hmm. So every once in a while, I forget that I passed the 70 mark. So uh, and I, I really want to thank you for your story. And uh, I'm glad that your journey is taking a positive turn and things are going up from here. Uh, and I wish you the best of luck and just hang in there. And thank you so much busy. for that. That's the big thing. Oh, you're welcome. Just keep busy. 
And this is um, <clears throat> this is um, Tony LaGrecker, and this is the Courage to Hope. And we've been listening to Diana Cruz and her journey so far in life. And she's got a lot of important things yet to come. So we're looking forward to talking to me, talking to her maybe a few years from now, and see where the journey has brought her. Again, thank you very much, and the courage to hope, and um, we'll see you again next time. Thank you. Thank you.